The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. If you've got your Bibles, turn in your copy of God's Word then to Colossians 2, verse 6. Colossians 2, verse 6, a walk in the right direction. As we continue, just picking up where we left off last week in this great book, we've been working passage by passage here, and man, it is just uh, building all around Jesus Christ. Now, as you're, you're turning there here, uh, let me just uh, throw a quote at you for a second. For the words of A.W. Tozer, uh, in his opening to that fantastic book, The Knowledge of the Whole, continue to ring true. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. You familiar with that quote? Some of you maybe have heard it, others not. If you have not read that book, The Knowledge of the Holy, it's a classic written uh, decades ago. But his opening lines there is, What comes to mind when you think about God are the most, or is rather the most important thing about you. And so as you think about that, what word or words or attributes uh, like immediately pop into your mind when you think of Jesus? They're an attribute. He is all loving. He is wise. You know, whether we realize it or not, our beliefs, especially our beliefs about the Lord, shape how we then believe and decide and act in our life. If you believe that God is sovereign and good, then you can walk with a humble courage no matter what is happening in your life or in the world around you. If you believe that God is distant and or inept, you can expect loneliness and dissatisfaction no matter what is happening in your life, what is happening in the world around you. If you don't believe that God even exists, well, then you're on your own. In today's text, we are brought really to that level, the level of our beliefs, what we believe specifically about Jesus, but not just uh, our beliefs like in our headspace, but in our obedience as well. For our beliefs lead then to our behavior. And the flow of Colossians, Paul is masterful in bringing this out. He, in the previous chapter, in chapter 1, he uh, gave us this grand picture of who Jesus was, wasn't he? Didn't he? And then from there, he, he brings us to this uh, glorious truth of our salvation. Now uh, that we've been reconciled, once enemies of God, now friends. Now then, or last week rather, as now that we're friends in Christ, here are the right expectations about following Jesus. Now that you're his friend, uh, then what are those expectations? And today, it's really then our right beliefs about Jesus. And next week, then, it'll be a uh, right worship. Now that we're Jesus' friends, let's make sure we're worshiping him rightly. And then after that, our right uh, uh, pursuits and desires, our right thoughts, and then really our right behaviors. Generally speaking, and he makes it very specific to in the church, in the home, and how we then live. And so, now that we're Christ's friends, well, how then do we live? What do we believe? And that's really where we find ourselves today. So, look there. Hopefully you found it. Let me read Colossians 2, 6-15. We'll set the table, and then we'll uh, look at it closely. You ready for that? All right, follow along. Your copy of God's Word. Let me read it. It says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 
For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses." By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now this is God's word for God's people today. There's a lot in there, isn't it? some illustrations, some imagery that we're going to have to uh, untangle. But here, before we uh, do that, here's the main point. Here's the argument. Here's the summary of what I just read. When following Jesus, walk in right belief about Jesus. If you're taking notes, write that down. It's a a main point there at the top of your notes. When uh, following Jesus, walk in right belief about Jesus. That's what Paul's getting at here. Last week, he's like, if you're going to follow Jesus, well, then expect a life uh, like Jesus. And today, if you're following Jesus, if you're his friend, then you need to believe the right things about him in order to walk in a way that pleases him. And so what he's arguing is this, that there's no philosophy out there, no way of thinking, no worldview, no dynamic in life that compares to Jesus, for Jesus is better. Amen. His way is wiser. His works are complete. There is none who compare to Him. And so he lays it out here. Well, what do we do then? Verses 6 and 7 are the mission. He just sees like, keep walking with gratitude according to what you've been taught. But he then acknowledges that there's a threat in verses 8 through 10. Be careful. Do not be uh, 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 deceived or distracted or even enslaved by these things. And then in verses 11 through 15, here's the solution. The solution is in Jesus, that Jesus is better than any threat. And what do we do? We just keep walking in gratitude, dwelling deeply in the gospel and those truths that we know and love. And so here's what that walk looks like. First point for you is we're to walk with dependence on Christ. We're to walk with dependence on Christ. The therefore in verse 6, look at it, look at it there. The therefore in verse 6 is really what connects the two halves of, of the book. And this is pretty typical in Pauline literature. Paul, if you're unfamiliar with your New Testament, Paul wrote most of uh, the books that we have in the Old Testament. He was an apostle, greatly used of the Lord, and, and wrote lots of epistles, or just that's a fancy word for letters, to like the church in Rome and Corinth. That's all those books there in the middle portion of your New Testament. Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Philippians, Colossians, what are the others? Philemon, First and Second Thessalonians, all those crazy names, right? First and Second Timothy, Titus. He wrote those books to these churches and to these people. And the way that he writes is really uh, meant, most of his letters. You can actually break them down pretty neatly. The first half is in belief. Here's what you are to believe. It's uh, very doctrinal, very theological. And then somewhere in the middle, there's kind of this transition. Maybe it's a, a, a prayer, a benediction of sorts, and uh, and then the last half is just like uh, all the commands. Alright, now in light of who Jesus is, now in light of what Jesus has done, therefore live this way. And these verses here uh, really formed that transition. 
uh, it, it connects here uh, the, the two halves of the book. And he says, therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, really a summary of the gospel. A summary of what he's just said. Not, don't, don't read that like our modern kind of uh, language of, hey, receive Jesus as Lord. Receive Jesus into your heart. You've heard that before? Really, the only one doing receiving is, is, is uh, the Father as he receives us into his family. But he's saying, you've received the gospel. The, the message that he's just been preaching here, he says, hey, Christ Jesus is your Lord. It's been brought to you. You have, have been given this truth. It's a summary statement of all that's come before this. And he says, so then, what does he say? So walk in him. And here's what I'd submit to you. This walk is the uh, command that controls the rest of the letter. Like I said earlier, he says, walk in him, and now everything else he's going to show us how. Here's what the Christian life looks like, how to think, how to worship, how to behave in a way that uh, honors the Lord. And isn't this, we've talked about this before, but isn't uh, walking with Christ, isn't that such a uh, perfect and appropriate picture of what following Jesus is all about? Isn't it? Like you who've walked with the Lord for many decades, it's not a sprint, is it? Following Christ, it's not just like, man, and sometimes like when we're saved, it, it seems like it's a sprint. It's really, really fast. But as life goes on, it's not definitely a sprint, right? But it's also not a saunter. Like we don't just kind of like lollygag through life, right? It really is a, a walk. Some have compared the Christian life more to a marathon than a, uh, than a, than a, than a sprint, but I'd submit to you, man, like, if you've ever watched marathoners, those guys are still really fast, aren't they? Some of those guys, they're just like sprinting. They're running four minute miles the whole way. Maybe not quite that fast, but you get it. And I, I, I would submit to you this morning that uh, our following Jesus is more like an ultra off-road distance run. And we, I used to be at Camp Eagle. Many of you know that, uh, an outdoor adventure camp. And we'd host these, uh, these, these events, and one of which was a trail run. And these guys and gals would show up, and they'd run for like 50 miles. In some races, like 100 miles through the hill country train. Not that like asphalt and pavement out there, mind you. But through the rocks, through the cactus, branches, roots on the ground. And they, they would just go, and some of them running for over a day, 24 hours plus in these races. And here's the thing, they had the most unusual stride. They, they, they weren't like sprinting, there wasn't, it wasn't like uh, 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 these long strides as they're going. It was, it was actually kind of like this weird like shuffle. You know, I can't, like, they're just going. And just no matter what, no matter the terrain, no matter how many hours into it, they just uh, had this shuffle-like pace all throughout the race. And they weren't built, like they didn't show up like your stereotypical, like super jacked up athletes that you see in many sports. Just average people. But they had one defining characteristic, endurance. Grit. They would not give up and they just kept shuffling through life, through the race. And isn't that such a picture just of what following Christ is like? One foot in front of the other, faithfully gone no matter the terrain no matter the circumstances we're built different than the world around us we just keep following uh, Jesus knowing that it's not in our strength right and we've already prayed for that we've already seen that in chapter 1 verse 11 it's not in our strength but we walk in dependence on Christ that's what he says so walk in your strength what does it say at the end of verse 6 so walk in him who's in who's the him referring to 
So I'm just going to answer Jesus, right? Referring to our unity in Christ. And maybe this, uh, uh, the, this, uh, you heard this as I was reading it. How many times is the in him repeated in, in these verses? I mean, it's just all over speaking that now that we are in Christ, now that we are his friend, our unity with him, this is what then our walk begins to look like. In verse 7, there's four traits there that define our walk. And interestingly enough, they really mirror the ways that we prayed back in chapter 1. He says, look at verse uh, 7 here, rooted in Christ, or rooted, this imagery of like bearing fruit, the flower imagery that we were praying for back in chapter 1, verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work. And then he says to be built up in him, or if we think of the prayer then, increasing in the knowledge of of God that we are ever uh, growing and always learning. To be established in Him or established in the faith. What did we pray for back in chapter 1? What does that remind us of? Being strengthened according to His glorious might. That we would be fortified. And all of this flavored with what? Gratitude. Abounding in thanksgiving or giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. See, the very things that we are praying for now become the things that define our walk with God. And so he's saying, see, you've received Jesus. These things will be true of you as you walk with him, as you are praying uh, for these things to happen. And as we pray, guess what? They happen. As they pray, we continue to grow. We continue to be strengthened. We continue to give thanks dependent on Jesus for these things. And the rest of the letter really shows us how. We walk dependently. We walk in Christ, connected and rooted and built up and established and abounding in thanksgiving with Him. And at any given moment in our life, we need these things to be true, don't we? We, 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 like all around us, it's like trying to uproot us. Things around us trying to tear us down. Things trying to uh, prevent us from having longevity or being established in the faith. Things are always trying to just steal our joy and our gratitude in the Lord. And so when we're building a fort, when we're building a house, what, gets, what direction gets uh, started on first? foundation. You dig down first. You dig down before you build up the structure being rooted, built up, established in right belief about Jesus is where we have to start. About who He is and what He's done. A foundation of the gospel that God is holy, that Christ is Himself God, but our sins separated us from Him. But Christ, God's great Son, came and lived the perfect life and died the death that we were supposed to die. He stood in our place. Doing all that so that we might be saved. And as we repent of our sin, we repent of of trying to live life on our own, trying to root ourselves in our own strength, trying to build ourselves up in what we can do. We repent, we turn from that, and we place our faith, our dependence solely on Jesus, His finished work on the cross. We then walk in Him and then walk in newness of life. We have to have that right. We have to have the foundation. We have to go right in our beliefs first. And as we dig down, as we get there, there's some things we have to dig away first, right? Roots and stumps and rocks and things that have to be cleared away, which is where He takes us in verses 8 through 10. See, not only do we walk in dependence on Christ, but we have to walk with discernment according to Christ. If you're taking notes, write that down. Here's the second thing. As we go deep, as we're building the foundation, we have to root away the things that would cause our foundation to be unstable. 
That would wreck the whole thing, and so we must walk with discernment according to Christ. Discernment meaning an understanding of what is true and good and right. And so in, the, in verses 8 through 10 here, there's like a diligent, vigilant tone in the words, isn't it? It's like, watch out, redemption. Watch out, Colossian believers. And he's especially forceful here. He's especially vigilant because in this manner we're dealing with our core. He's bringing us to a place where our beliefs reside, where our identity is attached to. And it's, it's here that we can get ensnared, even enslaved and it's trapped here or dangerous because only Jesus can truly transform us here. Only Jesus can take our, uh, our, our thoughts and transform us according to the renewing of our mind. We can do things to change our behavior, but freedom, true transformation, is found in Christ alone. Some of these things, he says, look at the, the language, they take us captive. But church, if we're in Christ today, are we prisoners anymore? What do we just sing about? No. He set us free from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We're no longer captives. We have a new way of thinking. But unbiblical thinking is everywhere. It's pervasive and persuasive. It's everywhere and enticing. There is an abundance of philosophies and deceptions and traditions uh, out there that would seek to take us captive. There is numerous of the stars. And so I began to like make a list this week of all the things that exist in our day. And the list is long and laborious, and actually it just is so sad. Because they're always changing. They're ever-evolving. The enemy is so crafty to put before us any, this, this philosophy. Philosophy is just the love of wisdom, the search for wisdom, and that's never ending. It's just as the text says, it, 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 these things are really linked here. It's just empty deception that leaves us dissatisfied and disillusioned on life. Why? Because it's based on speculation. It, it's, it's based on assumptions then that, that, uh, that, that is limited to just our observations about the way the world works and then we begin to build things about our identity and our beliefs about who God is and who we are that leave us dissatisfied and disillusioned. For they're according to human traditions. Traditions are, are, are everywhere and numerous as well. It's those traditions that, well, this is what everybody's doing. Those cultural things that, uh, that uh, we have to you know, keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. Or, or it's, well, this is the way that somebody has always believed. Or we've always done it in my family. Or this is what my uh, neighbors are doing. Or this is what scientists are saying today. Or this is what psychologists are finding. And Church, all these are inferior to the truths, the eternal truths in Christ Jesus. Not that they are entirely unhelpful, but we have to use discernment lest they take us captive. So if they're based on our observations, if they're based on our traditions, or even outside of us here, he says, according to the elemental spirits of the world, or maybe your Bible says elemental principles, or something else here. It's actually kind of difficult to extrapolate the meaning here of what he's getting at here, because literally it's just things in a row. According to the things in a row, you're like, what in the world? Well, it's like elementary, basic, rudimentary, the things that are just super simplified here. It's a, he's saying things that uh, don't be taken captive by the things that are just a regression into immature ways of thinking, of, of overly simplified world views. Similar things like uh, today, like karma. Well, just like you know, what goes around comes around, or I have to do these things so that it comes back around. That's just an elemental, a rudimentary way of thinking. 
be taken captive by those things. But the ESV takes a stance here in the elemental spirits because there's also in the, those days of the Colossians, the Greco-Roman believers believed in, or not believers, the people of those days rather, believed in, the, in, the, in astrology. The stars and the planets dictating the way that the world works and made their decisions based on the movement of the stars, the planets and the moon and really whether you, whatever the it is, if we land on spirits or principles or anything in there, either don't get taken captive by either. <laughs> They're both still around. They're both affecting even the Colossian believers in that day. And all of these things, as you even in your own mind, you could probably name things that fit in each of these categories, don't you? The options are numerous, but what does it look like? What are these false philosophies, these worldviews, these identities here? Well, there really anything that become core to your belief about who you are and who God is, and they take your, uh, your, your, you captive in the way that you think about yourself and about others. And here's what really where we know that they, uh, where they lead us astray is when they take us away from Jesus. And place anything above Him and above His rule and authority. And sometimes these things are things that happen to us. Things that we inherit, even good things. Uh, things that we attach to our identity, or it might be things that, uh, that were bad, where you were the victim in it. I'm not trying to minimize the pain here. It's real. It is real. But, so, uh, but the slavery to these things can also be real and painful. It's things that, uh, maybe it's something you did. We're boasting and it becomes part of your identity about a good work that you did or a job that you have or maybe it's something that you regret on the bad side and, and it's something that you wish was no longer true or on your record. These worldviews, these identities are anything that could be uh, uh, attached to our identity. That's something that is defining, whether through a personality profile, through a, a, a training of some sort where we begin to think, well, this is just who I am. This is the way we can even spiritualize. Well, this is the way God has made me. And now all of a sudden we are enslaved to this way of thinking that does not allow us to change or grow or mature in Christ and takes us away from the Lord and from the people of the Lord. Sometimes these worldviews, identities, they're relational. They're based on our attractions. Where we're defined by what we love, whether it's a person or a certain person, a type of person or whatever it might be could be religious, simple ways of thinking, could be political, could be cultural. I have to do this to succeed in my job. I have to do this if I want my kids to succeed. I need them in this sport, this activity, in this tutoring, or whatever it might be. It begins to control our time and our decision making and leads us away from the Lord and the things of the Lord. And here's the thing, church. Warning is real. See to it that no one takes you captive. And so, Paul's not here to beat us up. I'm not here to beat us up. What he's doing is offering us a hand from outside the prison. Jesus already unlocked the door. He's already opened the door for us. And yet, we're enslaved. And maybe in our fear, we're staying in the prison. And Paul's just going to say, hey, come on out. Come on out, come walk in the freedom that Jesus has won for us. You don't need any of these other things to define you. You have all you need in Jesus. See, there is no hyphenated Christian. It is all or nothing. It's easy to be taken captive, isn't it? 
It's why discernment, why uh, our own self-examination, why the body of Christ, why the Word of God is so uh, help necessary to help us see where we can't see. Because see, look where he takes us after the warning. And not according to Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Amen, right? In Christ, Christ, he is the completeness or the fullness of everything that is God. He was not less than, he is not like a, a, a less than God the Father. No, in him it all exists. He is the head, he is the, uh, the uh, authority over all rule and authority. He is overall, he sits in the place of supremacy over all things, both physical and spiritual. But we too have been filled in him. Remember, Jesus is the answer to every existential question. What is God like? Look at Christ. Where did all this come from? You got it. Jesus. Who's in charge around here? Jesus. Where is all this headed? Where, how is all this going to be summed up? Where are we going? Jesus. It's Jesus and anything or anyone that comes and claims to have an answer to those questions that doesn't ultimately find its answer in Christ can take us captive. Take us captive. But we're no longer captives, are we, church? We're His friends. Now that we're in Him, we have union with Christ like this marriage. We're one flesh in Him. We too have been filled in Him. We have all we need for life and godliness in His Spirit, like I said, has given us the discernment so that alarm bells should be sounding when, uh, uh, when false ideas spring up. Uh, our, our, he gave us His church and believers are, are around us so that when we miss these things, brothers and sisters say, hey, you're taken captive to that schedule. You're taken captive to this way of, of living. You, This is not going to end well for you. And they sound in grace, in love, those alarm bells for us. He's given us His Word that is a, a, a eternal and unchanging to teach us what is true and teach us what is right so that we can walk in wisdom, we can walk with discernment according to Christ and not against any of the, the, the ways listed or any of the new and fancy and shiny ways that take us captive in every age and in every culture. But we walk dependently. We walk with discernment. And here's the last thing. We walk with confidence in Christ. See, as we're walking, we're following Jesus, we've become His friend. This, when we believe what is true about Jesus, here's the thing, it gives us great faith or gives us great confidence in who Jesus is. And this is what he's getting to the core of in this passage. Now that you become a friend of Jesus, expect a life like Jesus, and believe right things about Jesus, and your walk will be rooted and built up, established, and full of thanksgiving. Like, that's the kind of life we want. Like, do you want to live a life of confident gratitude? In Christ. You want a life like that? I for sure do. I, I want it. And he's, this is where he's taking us here. He's warning, don't get taken captive, but rather continue to live on this foundation. And he uses all these allusions from the Old Testament to show really the incomparable wisdom of God throughout all uh, his humanity right here. That they're pointing to something greater. It's like you know, the Gnostics of those days, the 
philosophers that think they're so wise. And he's like, hey, let me just show you that God is so much wiser. He's been dropping these hints all throughout uh, human history. And Paul then is like, in these remaining verses in 11 through 15, he's like one-upping the Gnostics. He's like, yeah, let me just show you like the, the symbols here uh, in these gospel truths. The mysteries that have been spoken of in the previous passage. Here's what it is. And it's, it's real imagery, right? And it really refers to three biblical truths that, that are kind of like rock salt, the bottom foundational, that we can believe with all the resolution and conviction and confidence that our faith provides. Here's it. Like, you want to walk in confidence with Christ and be confident that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. This is what the first 11 and 12 is. We're, we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Look at what he says here. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And now, I, I get it. It's awkward, right? The Bible has, you know, just doesn't shy away from the awkward things, uh, unfortunately. But what is this? What, what's he bringing us here? Well, he's, he's referring to the same truth that he talked about in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Now, consider yourselves, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. Uh, that uh, settled conviction and resolution. He's telling the, the Colossians the same thing, just using this imagery. And so what was, what was, what was circumcision? Well, remember, it was a symbol. Symbol given to Abraham way back in Genesis. First, God calls Abraham, calls him to follow him. He says, hey, follow me into a land that I will show you. Our day, we're like, yeah, give me the GPS coordinates because I need to know what it's going to take, where I'm going, and how much it's going to cost, and how many miles. And God's just like, nope, I want you to go. And Abraham does. And what is it? What does God do? Credits, considers, reckons him, or this to him in faith. His faith is righteousness. That's what I'm trying to get to. And after that then, God sets apart this people through the sign of circumcision, the removal of the foreskin of all the males. And it was a symbol that here Israel was set apart from all the rest of humanity. No, no one else was like this. This was the, uh, the sign that this people is different than everybody else. But it was a symbol not just like an, of external religion. Like, well, we're going to wear this t-shirt or we're going to wear this hat to, uh, to identify us as somebody different. But it was one that uh, pointed to uh, that this is a faith that affects us at our most intimate places. To the core of who we are. That's what God has control of. He is Lord over all of us. And even beyond that, it was a reminder of the messianic promise that would come through Abraham's seed or his offspring, that a Savior was coming. The circumcision was a sign, a symbol of something much greater. And now by faith, what he's getting at here, we too have been set apart. The power of sin has been cut off and is no longer our master. And this is a spiritual reality. It has not happened by hands, as you said. It is not in the physical act, but, in, but spiritual. The circumcision of the heart that happened by Christ, now that we uh, are not trusting our body of flesh, our works, our deeds in order to save us, but we are trusting in the work that Christ has done to set us apart. We are now dead to sin and made alive in Christ. And that's really what he's getting here. But in verse 12, the imagery switches to baptism. Now, if Paul was in the preaching schools of our day, you know, he would be told, hey, you can't mix up metaphors like this. People get confused. You know, you have to use, like, our preaching classes, you have to use, like, a consistent metaphor throughout uh, your, your delivery so that, you know, we can get it and we can stay on track. But if you're always switching from, like, well, now we're talking about baseball and here we're talking about swimming and all that, like, people, like, our, 
Wires get crossed, right? Paul's doing that here. He would have failed preaching class. But he had the Holy Spirit, and he inspired it. And so we have to make sense of it here. So I, I know there's a lot here, but he's switching now. Because what is baptism? Baptism uh, is also a symbol. Baptism is something that we have. It is a sign, uh, a symbol of our union with Christ. That we are now one with Him, identifying with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. That our old has passed away, the new has come. And so He's bringing us to this idea that we've now dead to sin and alive in Christ. Baptism is such a beautiful picture that we have been given now as the church to show, hey, we're different. We're different, and we. this is what we believe. Sin is not our master. And this is a truth here. This is a truth to be rooted in, to be built up and established in, and giving thanksgiving that sin is not our master. Christ is. We've been joined to Christ, made alive to Him, to walk in Him. And church, it is so easy to forget this when we're tempted, isn't it? It's so easy to forget these foundational truths to be taken captive by our sin, to be taken captive into ways of thinking, well, that's not so bad. It's okay in this way. And it takes us, we must remember then our identity, who we are in Christ, the provisions given to us to say no and to abound in thanksgiving even in the face of temptation and when sin is promising and enticing to us know we've been made dead to it and alive in Jesus Christ. But there's a second truth here, a second one that we have confidence in Christ to believe in that we are forgiven fully, freely, and forever. Fully, freely, and forever. Look at verse 13 here. I know this is technical here, but it's so good. It's so rich. These, uh, these, the imagery here is fantastic. He says, you're dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh. Same thing, right? You were once this way, but God made us alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses here. Jesus took care of our debt. And He uses an image here. Now, most of us probably in here have a mortgage. Imagine if somebody took your your mortgage on your house, that record of debt standing against you, right? How much ever it is. Maybe some of you are nearing the end, you've got like just a few thousand dollars left. Some maybe a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, maybe it's a million, I don't know. But it is a record of debt against your name and it has legal demands, doesn't it? You don't pay it, what are they going to do? Boot you out of it, right? Maybe take some other things from you as well. This Record of debt. And imagine if somebody took it and paid it off all for you. Give me your margin on. I'll pay off the principal. I'll pay it off. So you can live there fully, freely, and forever. It would change the way you live in that house, wouldn't it? Lisa should. You would live more grateful for this. You would live hopefully more generous uh, with your house, this gift that had been given to you. And how much better to know that all of our trespasses, our sins, and all the record of debt that stood against us was paid by Christ, nailed to that cross, so that we would never have to pay one cent of it. Paid fully, freely, and forever. This is the gospel, is it not? Changes the way we live, should it not? More grateful more generous, more full of grace towards others as we who've been forgiven an eternal debt can now forgive those who sin against us. Gives us more confidence in the battle against sin, more, uh, more grace towards those who are struggling through the suffering. And man, it is so easy to forget these truths, isn't it? To be taken captive in bitterness 
and not released and free in forgiveness. It's so easy to be taken captive, especially when we're hurt. And yet this is a truth to be rooted in, to be built up in, to be established in, and abounding in thanksgiving as we think of the freedom and the forgiveness we have in Christ and can give it to others. It's a confidence that we have. A belief that is, is foundational to who we are. We are forgiven fully, freely, and forever. But there's a final truth to be confident in, and it is this, that Jesus reigns victorious. Jesus reigns victorious. We've sung about this often already this morning. In verse 15, he says, He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, speaking again of the spiritual forces, the uh, forces of darkness here, similar in the way he did earlier in the letter, and similar the way he does in Ephesians 6, uh, verse 12, referring to uh, the, uh, the spiritual rulers and authorities here. And the dramatic irony of this verse here is that at the cross... It was Jesus who hung there on the road in open public shame, a spectacle as a criminal. The religious leaders, the Roman soldiers, the forces of darkness celebrating their supposed triumph by killing Jesus, the King of the Jews. And yet little did they realize what was actually happening. That there, as he stood in shame, what we deserved, his death, was actually the victory stroke that won our salvation so that they would be put to shame. As their influence was uh, minimized, as they, uh, they were disarmed, it said, they was paraded in front of us as shameful or paraded in front of Christ. All their spiritual power now disarmed over us. No power. Jesus reigns victorious. And now we live confident in that day in and day out as free men and women out from under sin's influence. It's easy to forget this sometimes, isn't it, when evil seems to be triumphant in our world. It's easy to forget that Christ is sovereign. He is good. We get, we, we get all bent out of shape. We can be driven to panic. And yet, this is a truth to be rooted in, to be built up and established in, and giving thanks so that we can walk in the right direction with right belief about Jesus in this long-distance shuffle towards heaven. Confident in Christ, rooted, built up, established, abounding in thanksgiving because of who Jesus is, what He's done, and what He's doing now, and has promised to do in the future, and He's continuing to do amongst us now. This is what we believe. This is how we walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord, believing the right things about who Jesus is and about who we are in Him. And so what I want us to do is I want us to pray to that end. We're actually going to take communion together as the cross and the victory in Christ has been placed before us this morning. And so let me pray, and then we'll take some communion together. So pray with me now.